Well, good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodeyer, your host for this program. Thank you for joining us. You're hearing us over EWTN Radio, and we're coming to you from the Coming Home Network International offices in Central Ohio. Um, we're in the midst of Advent, and it's, I think, appropriate as I invite some of my guests to join us for this program to talk about particular verses that, in a way, were their, the advent to their awakening to the Catholic faith uh, or to a, a deeper commitment to Jesus Christ. Advent is that time when we prepare, examine ourselves. Are we ready for the coming of Christ? And uh, in sense, the verses we're looking at today are verses that help today's guest awaken his heart and mind to the fullness of the teaching that Christ has for us. Thank you for joining this program, which is connected to a website called deepinscripture.com, where if you go to the website, not only can you watch this program live, but also you can see a picture of our guest, his bio, and the text that we want to study today. Our guest is very familiar to those of you that uh, watch EWTN, listen to uh, Catholic Radio, and have uh, your uh, fingers in good modern Catholic literature, because Mark Shea is a great writer, great editor, speaker, uh, is very familiar, and he's, the Lord has been using Mark in, in a great variety of ways as a great witness of the faith. As you can see by the bio, Mark is a popular Catholic writer and speaker. Some of the books that he's been involved with are A Guide to the Passion, 100 Questions About the Passion of the Christ, in other words, the movie that was out a number of years ago, of course. The books that I particularly remember, Mark Four, that were in fact helpful to my own journey as well as others that we have worked with here in the Coming Home Network are By What Authority an Evangelical Discovers Catholic Tradition, Making Senses Out of Scripture, Reading the Bible as the First Christians Did, this is my body, and evangelical discovers the real presence. And the Da Vinci Deception, a hundred questions about the facts and fiction of the Da Vinci Code book. So lots of great stuff. But I want to make sure I mention his most recent book, Mary, Mother of the Son. It's a trilogy published by Catholic Answers. Everything you ever want to know about why Catholics pay so much attention to Mary, the Mother of God, these are the great books. Hey, it's Christmas. Christmas just around the corner, excuse me. Anyone in your family or friends that has questions about the Catholic understanding of Mary, I would strongly encourage you to either go to your local Catholic bookstore, go to an online bookstore, and look for Mark's newest books on Mary, Mother of the Son. Just do a search for Mark Shea, and you'll find all of his books. Mark is a well-known columnist. He has radio, uh, regular weekly radio spots, and uh, again, all these are listed on the website. He does a lot of, well, he has a very popular blog on the internet, and uh, he's senior content editor for CatholicExchange.com. He lives in Washington State with his wife Janet and their four sons, and very soon in the spring, he's going to appear in a movie, a, a, a movie rendition of a book by G.K. Chesterton. Maybe Mark will talk about it once we get him online here in a second after the break. But this is our guest for today, Mark Shea, and the verse that he has chosen that he sees as one of those verses he didn't see before is 
a verse that I include in my own list of verses I never saw, 2 Thessalonians 2.15. It's an important verse, short verse, but in a moment I'll have Mark talk about why this verse is truly significant for us to consider, not only in um, alone, but in connection with other scriptures, particularly that deal with the word tradition. And St. Paul wrote, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by letter. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. time on The Journey Home. Join Marcus for a special roundtable episode of The Journey Home from Sweden when he talks with Father Martin Pender, Father Francis Eric Larson, and Ulf Samuelson about the importance of the liturgy. That's on the next Journey Home, only on EWTN. The Journey Home is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. If you enjoy the Journey Home television program on EWTN, you'll want to purchase a copy of Marcus Grodi's book, Journey's Home. Journey's Home contains the conversion stories of men and women who, as a result of their surrender to Jesus Christ, heard a call to follow him more completely in the Catholic Church. Many of them were Protestant pastors or missionaries. Others were laymen who, though working in secular jobs, took their calling to serve Christ in the world very seriously. To order your copy of Marcus Grodi's book, Journey's Home, simply visit our website at www.chresources.com or call us toll-free at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. I'm joined today by Mark Shea. Hello, Mark. How are you doing out there in Washington State? Doing well. We're watching it rain. Are you? It's what we do here in Washington, now, <laughs> especially in December. So if I get this right, while we suffer with snow out here in Ohio, you usually see more of a milder, rainy winter, right? Yeah, pretty much. We're, uh, you know, it, it's a... It's a wet climate, but it's how we pay for all the greenness. So. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, thanks, Mark. I really do appreciate you joining us uh, today. And um, I mentioned a little bit uh, earlier about this movie you're on. I, I can't let that go by. I'm going to make sure that you tell the audience what that's about. And for oh, them, what, sure. what should they be looking out for here in the spring? Yeah, it's a, it's a film called Man Alive. It's based on a novella by G.K. Chesterton. The great thing about Chesterton is he writes terrific parts for fat guys. <laughs> and um, so, <laughs> so how'd you fit into that? Oh, I'm a fat guy. I was I was I play Innocent Smith, uh, one of Ch- one of Chesterton's great characters in, in my opinion. I just think he's he's a wonderful character, uh, very eccentric. Uh, uh, he's a character. Say again. He's a character. He's a character, and he. Um, <laughs> He brings a house full of um, of uh, dull, unhappy people to life uh, by unorthodox means and methods, and um, 
it's a, it's a fun comedy. We we shot it uh, last March, and uh, it's in the final stages of being edited. And our hope is to get it out uh, into theaters, hopefully uh, this spring or summer. So. <laughs> that is so neat that you were invited to do that. It was fun. Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, it, it was. It's basically it was a. It was something that uh, Dale Alquist, who yeah. uh, EWTN fans are familiar with. Um, as the host of the Apostle of Common Sense, uh, Dale was the executive producer of the project, and uh, uh, we had we had a riot uh, <laughs> making it. So it'll be uh, it'll be fun. Well, before we proceed any farther, I want to remind the audience that we'd love to hear from you. If you have any comments or questions about anything that Mark and I will talk about in a moment, please call us at 800-664-5110, or you can call the regular number for the Coming Home Network International, 740-450-1175, or you can write me an email at marcus at deepinscripture.com. Mark, uh, there are lots of verses that that both you and I could consider the verses we never saw, verses that awakened us to the beauty of the church. Mm-hmm. You chose Second Thessalonians 2.15. In general, what is there about this particular passage that is important to you? Well, it lies at the root of how we understand Revelation. I was not raised Christian at all. When I became Christian, I became Christian uh, in the context of a small non-denominational Bible study that met on my dorm floor. Uh, And I owe those guys a a huge debt. They're the people that they taught me how to read the Bible. They taught me, you know, how to pray, how to live in community. Um, I I owe this group a huge uh, debt. Uh, But at the same time, uh, in coming into contact with Christ through that tradition, Uh, One of the things that I was taught was uh, the Bible alone is the sole source of revelation. Uh, And so what slowly began to happen was, you know, you start asking questions that uh, can't be answered within that framework. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because it turns out that the Bible is not the big book of everything. (laughs) You know, it was not intended by God to be the big book of everything. Uh, And so there there are lots and lots of questions uh, that you can't get an answer to simply by applying to the Bible. Let let me ask you a question about that experience of yours, because I know so many who either, who had similar experiences, either because they were brought up with no religious background or they had fallen away from whatever religious background they had, let's say in college, mm-hmm. and then have this awakening in their young adult years through a, a college outreach. For me, it was a, a, a small charismatic church near college campus. Mm-hmm. Um, and w- what I want to get to is when I came back then to faith, like you were coming to faith at that age in college, I presumed that the leader of that fellowship who was teaching me about Jesus and his theology, I just presumed that what he was teaching me was true. Mm -hmm. Would you say the same about your experience? Yeah, um, it it was something you didn't give a lot of thought to. I mean, in becoming Christian, uh, 
I looked around. I thought, well, these are the people that God put me with. Yeah. So, but you probably okay, were thinking uh, that learn, what you were studying. You know, in, I don't know anything. <laughs> yeah. My guess is you probably weren't thinking in that Bible study. Well, wait a second. What what we believe in this Bible study, how is it different from the Lutherans over there? Or right. The, I wasn't thinking about stuff like that at all. Yeah. Uh, because my focus, and I, and I don't think it was a bad one, was, you know, primarily what I was asking was how can I uh, get closer to Jesus? How can I do what Jesus is asking me to do? And, you know, when you approach God on that basis, he honors it. You know, when, when you're honestly seeking wisdom, when you're honestly seeking the help of the Holy Spirit, he will certainly honor that. Uh, and, and he did, you know. And, but part of the way that he honored that ultimately was... Uh, and and this is sort of like the experience of Israel as well. I mean, Moses, for crying out loud, has, you know, real living encounters with God. Uh, and Israel learns a huge amount from Moses uh, and th- from the revelation that is given to Moses on Sinai and so forth and through the prophets. And they do well to do that. And yet the paradox of that revelation is that uh, the point of that revelation is that you can't find salvation through that revelation alone. Uh, it's it's yep. pointing you to something beyond itself. Uh, and that was exactly the experience that I had as an evangelical, was that I, I learned a huge amount uh, about God, and yet at the same time, the, the ultimate thing that I learned was that uh, evangelicalism was pointing me beyond itself to something else, uh, or was being used by God to point me beyond itself to something else. And, and what what that turned out to be was the fullness of revelation in the Catholic tradition. So I, that's why I'm grateful to my evangelical roots, and uh, uh, I would, that's why I would defy anybody who would say, you know, oh, well, you know, Evangelicalism is just wrong, and the Catholic faith alone is right. Uh, I don't think that the Church's relationship with other traditions, and particularly other Christian traditions, uh, is like that. Uh, and the one of the reasons the Church affirms, yeah, the Church affirms what yeah. what can be affirmed uh, in the evangelical tradition, which is an awful lot. I mean, oh, yeah. you know, when you look at the creed, evangelicals can agree with us on everything in the creed except for the meaning of Catholic in yeah. we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Yeah, and the meaning of communion of the saints, maybe. Well, sure, and yeah. things like the real presence in the Eucharist. I mean, there yeah. are real big differences as well. But, um, like you but said... it's important not to over-exaggerate them and forget the huge amount of commonality there is, too. Right. I was uh, thinking about what you said as you had this experience in your Bible study, um, you, you you weren't at that level thinking about doctrines, uh, ecclesiology. Right. Uh, you were thinking about, as you said, how do I get closer to Jesus, and how right. do I do what He wants me to do? And right. And and even pushing you on that, what we you and I have both come to recognize is that there is a plethora of opinions on how to answer those two questions. Right. We just had the, the Feast of John of the Cross on Monday. 
Well, his understanding of how do you come to know Jesus and follow him is a whole lot different than what John Calvin would have said is how you come to know Jesus and follow him. Right. Or the Pentecostals right. or John, the, John Wesley or Martin Luther or, or Oral Roberts or Billy Graham, that knowing Jesus and following him are, again, up to a great number of opinions. Right. Exactly right, and and so you know what it came, and and that as I sort of you know as I grew in my understanding of of Christianity and started to look further than you know the the group of you know thirty forty fifty people that constituted my little non denom church, I started to realize, well, wait a minute, there's like some real serious differences <laughs> <laughs> right. between, you know, the gospel as I've learned it and the gospel as lots of other Protestants have learned it. So do we baptize or we do not do we not baptize? Do we have communion or do we not have communion? Uh are these you know, important, you know? I mean uh, that, yeah, is, is you know, is the second coming what it was understood to be by uh you know fans of left behind or what i was taught in the church that i belonged to was that the, the that the real second coming was pentecost that that's when jesus returns and that's that's is as good as it gets there's there is no second coming at the end of time so he had already come right and so this is like news to me to discover oh you, you know most christians <laughs> don't agree with this you know uh, uh, and so, as I, you know, as I grew in my understanding of the fact that, you know, the church really has been around for quite a long time, and it really is quite a bit bigger <laughs> than what I had anticipated, I was, I was met with exactly the kind of, you know, uh, confusion and, and sort of din of, you know, conflicting voices, uh, uh, within the Protestant tradition, and also, you know, looking at the Catholic tradition as well. Uh, you know, the, the Catholic tradition has its own take on things, but of course, also within the Catholic, I was received into the church, recall, in the Archdiocese of Seattle in the mid-1980s. So you were on the left coast. Right, I was out on the left coast. So, yeah. you know, within the Catholic church, you had various voices uh, saying various things. Uh, and so... You know, what do you do with all of that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and what do you do, you know, uh, how, when you go back to the Bible, what I found was that you could find all kinds of biblical verses that would back up everything that each party was saying. Yeah. So then what? You know? <laughs> yeah, which one? How do you choose? And the verse that you've chosen, it, with this as an introduction, this is just sweet, Mark, because everything that you've talked about, about this confusion, as well as the simplicity of that early Bible study, and then as you came to know your faith and began to see, this verse speaks to, as it did in that very first century when, when Paul wrote this to, to the Christians at Thessalonica. Let me read this verse again, and if you would, start talking about the, the, the really unique significance of this particular verse. Paul said, so then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by letter. Well, that was that was the 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 verse that I started to notice when I began to realize uh, that the Bible alone a didn't work, and b that nobody really believed in the Bible alone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, 
what I what I started to realize was that we the, the the reality was not that Catholics believe in sacred tradition and evangelicals don't. What I began to realize was that Catholics believed in sacred tradition and knew that they did, and evangelicals like me believed in sacred tradition and didn't know that we did. <laughs> uh, because, uh, in fact, of course, the way that I knew, for example, what books belonged in my NIV Bible mm-hmm. was because not because I had carefully read over the NIV and then carefully read through the Catholic Bibles and then carefully read through all the other literature that was circulating around in the second century that was claiming to be apostolic literature like the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Philip and the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. And then I, you know, on after a careful reading of all of that, then I decided... Uh, to go with the NIV as the inspired Word of God, because according to my inner inspiration radar detector, I had figured out which books were inspired. All that had really happened was I'd walked into a church, somebody handed me a Bible and said, this is the Word of God. (laughs) I said, oh, okay. You know, because what did I know? Mm -hmm. And so what was I doing? Well, I was relying on uh, tradition. I was relying on the testimony of the church saying, uh, this is inspired scripture, and that isn't. And that's sacred tradition. Yeah. So you got, you know, you got the, the, the table of contents that's, that is an aspect of sacred tradition. And I started to realize that this happens a lot, that as evangelicals, we believe that life is, human life is sacred from the moment of conception, not because Scripture is tremendously clear on this topic. It's really not, actually, as you can discover by talking to pro-choice Christians. Yep. Uh, right. But because sacred tradition uh, had said, this is how you read Scripture. We knew that monogamy was the one and only way to conceive of marriage. Not because it, that's terribly clear, clear in Scripture, because it's not. <laughs> right. Well, the <laughs> a lot Testament, of polygamy going on in the Old Testament. The big heroes in the Old Testament had big lots heroes of wives in the Old and kids. Testament. And, you know, David isn't condemned for being a polygamist. In yeah. fact, David is told by God that I'm the one that gave you your many wives. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So how do we know that monogamy is the one and only way to conceive of Christian marriage? Well, because of sacred tradition. <laughs> it's the way you read the Scripture. It's like a pair of glasses that you're given so that when you read Scripture, you will see it in a certain way. And uh, I I started to realize we're doing that over and over and over again. Uh, And when I looked at that passage from 2 Thessalonians, basically what you're seeing there is the fact that that pattern is not... That's not a bug. That's a feature. <laughs> uh, um, uh, that it's the apostles who hand down their teaching, both by word of mouth, that is by sacred tradition, uh, and by letter, that is by, for example, things like Second Thessalonians. Yep. Uh, and so, from the get-go, you have an apostolic teaching that is handed down in both written and unwritten form. And when I looked around me at the present-day church, I didn't see just Catholics living as though that's still true. I saw everybody living as though it's still true, evangelicals as much as Catholics, because what we were doing as evangelicals was borrowing fragments of sacred tradition that had percolated down to us through Protestantism 
And those had ultimately come from the Catholic faith. Like that, it, in, that, in that little Bible study, uh, you said it had a unique view of the second coming. Right. Was that little Bible study Trinitarian? Yes, it was Trinitarian, which, of course, is another aspect of sacred tradition, because yep. the reality is nobody is just, like, walking along the street one day and, oh, look, a Bible. And they pick it up and read it and conclude from reading it why it's obvious to me that God is one God in three persons, that the second person of the Trinity is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, and that the second person of the Trinity uh, assumed a human nature in a hypostatic union uh, and is uh, uh, with two uh, one divine person with, with a human nature and a divine nature. Yeah. Why anyone could see that. <laughs> Just picking up the Bible. No, yeah. the real reason we know this stuff, of course, is because uh, the church ironed out its understanding of Revelation and gave us the creed so that we would be able to have, again, a pair of glasses uh, through which to read Scripture and understand it rightly. Let's take a break, Mark. When we get back, I'm going to push to the end of our program talking about what Paul meant by standing firm and holding. Mm-hmm. But talk a bit about the, um, uh, the the backflips that some have done to avoid the use of this word tradition, uh, not just in their practice of the faith, but in the translation of Bibles. We'll look sure. at that when we, on the other end of the break. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grode. I am joined today by Mark Shea, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. Next time on Life on the Rock. They're found on many university campuses in Canada, proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ in a clear and simple way. Tune in when Andre and Anshel Renier join Doug and Father Mark to talk about Catholic Christian outreach. That's on the next Life on the Rock, here on EWTN. Life on the Rock is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Follow the compelling journey of one man who became a Church of Christ minister and found himself entering the Catholic Church. Bruce Sullivan shares his conversion story in his new book titled Christ in His Fullness. In this book, he communicates a passionate love for Christ and the inexhaustible treasures of grace found in the Catholic Church. Perhaps you, too, will discover the same riches in the fullness of Christ. To order a copy of this book for yourself or a friend, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or call us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. I'm joined today by Mark Shea, and we're looking at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15. Mark, before I, I get your answer on this, I'm going to read two scriptures to our audience just from the book, the, the translation you mentioned earlier. You mentioned the NIV, the New International Version, which is also the version that I used as a evangelical pastor for about 10 years. I'm going to first read Mark chapter 7, verse 8. When Jesus says, you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. 
But I'm also going to then read the verse that we're looking at today, 2 Thessalonians 2.15, because they translated it a, a tad different than I read to you in the beginning from the Revised Standard Version. Their rendition, when so then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. What's going on here, Mark? What's going on here is um, dishonest translation that is uh, driven by bias. Because the word there that in Mark is translated traditions uh, is paradosis in Greek. Uh, whereas in contrast, the word that is translated teachings in Second Thessalonians, because of course in, in the verse from Mark, tradition is bad. <laughs> so it's translated tradition. Uh, in Second Thessalonians, the word that's translated teachings is, by an odd coincidence, the word paradosis, <laughs> <laughs> which meant traditions when it was bad, but it means teachings when it's good. Yeah. And this is something uh, that, that is one of the ironies of the Sola Scriptura position, which is that uh, it it tends to assume that tradition always means human tradition. Yep. And so when Paul speaks of tradition in Second Thessalonians, well, he can't be talking about tradition because tradition has to be bad. And so it gets translated teachings, but basically it's exactly the same word. Yep. And what that leads us to is one of the great ironies of the Sola Scriptura, uh, yep. well, let's call it a tradition, shall we? because that's what it is, only it really is a tradition of men. There is no basis in Scripture for sola scriptura as apostolic tradition. It was something that was cooked up uh, in the 16th century uh, as an excuse for jettisoning those aspects of sacred tradition that Reformers and you know, other uh, Protestants didn't happen to like. Uh, so, if you call it a, if you call it a teaching, that that makes it okay. <laughs> well, let me ask you this, Mark. Let me ask you then. The yeah. idea that this book that I have in front of me, that begins with Genesis and ends with Revelation, which it says in Revelation, I can't take a book out of or put one in. Right. I can't add to or subtract from. It says in Revelation. Right. Which, as an evangelical, I meant, you know, you can't pull a book out or put one in, though even though the Reformers did in the Reformation. But right. the idea that this is inspired, that these letters are infallible, is this a tradition or a teaching? <laughs> this is a tradition. <laughs> it is a tradition. <laughs> Except our Protestants wouldn't use that word. Right. The, the difficulty, of course, is that although the Apostles say that Scripture is inspired, they don't tell us what is scripture which what books are scripture yeah well you know moses and the prophets okay what does that mean well we're not clear and how about the new testament how do you know what goes in the new testament well the only way you can know that uh is the way the church knew it uh dan brown did us a favor a couple of years ago when he wrote the da vinci code because the the thrust of the Da Vinci Code was, among other things, to ask the question, what right does the Church have to decide which books go in the Bible? 
Well, there's a really simple answer to that question from a Catholic perspective. There's no answer to that question uh, from an evangelical perspective. Uh, Which is why the, the, the actually, in the end, the movie has as, as big of a negative impact on evangelicals as it oh, might yeah, have on the Catholic Church. Huge impact on evangelicals because it calls into, the, into question uh, the veracity of Scripture itself. So yeah. if, you, you know, if you're going to argue on the basis of the Bible alone, and the whole point is, why should I trust the Bible? Yeah. Well, you're stuck, yeah. you know? But for Catholics, the answer to the question is, is really quite simple. The answer to the question, what right does the Church have to decide what goes into the Bible, is exactly the same answer as the question, what right do you have to decide what goes in your family photo album? <laughs> Well, it's your family photo album, dude. <laughs> you get to decide, because that's what it's about. And that's what the Bible is, is the Bible turns out to be the Church's family photo album. The Church said, we'll have these books in our Bible because these reflect what we believe. This is what we've been preaching about from the pulpit yeah. all these centuries. That's, <laughs> that's what we use when we, when we read Scripture. Uh, and so that's, that's what our Bible is. Uh, and so that's basically how the Church uh, decided what goes into Scripture. Uh, but it means as well, then, that you know, when we're talking about tradition, we really have to be clear. We can't cheat and fudge and say, well, paradosis means, you know, when, when, it's, when it means something I don't like, then it's tradition. But if it means something I do like, well, then it's teaching. Well, it's the same word. It's paradosis. And it makes it very convenient when, for example, when I was a Protestant minister, when, when you were a Bible leader, it makes it very con convenient for us to therefore decide which things we want to promote or, or demote. Right, right. And uh, I, let me ask you this, Marcus. I know you wrote a, a very fine book on this issue, uh, by what authority the evangelical discovers Catholic tradition. In our translation of this verse, when we use the word tradition, of course, the translations have it with a small t. Right. And as Catholics, we talk about tradition with a small t and a big t. And I think that's something I'd like you to talk about, because when we think, okay, what's sacred tradition? How do you decide what's in it and isn't in it? Right. Well. When you're looking at the life of the church, you know the the apostles give us a general distinction between uh, the traditions they passed on, which is what we would call sacred tradition, mm -hmm. uh, as well as uh, human tradition. And one of the big misunderstandings is that the is that the apostles and the church following the apostles doesn't mean to denigrate human tradition as a bad thing. All the apostles are warning about, and all the church ever warns about, is the elevation of some human tradition to the status of sacred tradition. Uh, and that's a real temptation, of course, because human traditions enshrine things that we really love. Yep. Uh, and so when you love something, you want, it, you want to exalt it. You know, so, for example, we here in the United States exalt uh, uh, democracy. You know, we love uh, our tradition of liberty. We love our tradition of a free market, for example. And those are good things. Uh, the only point at which the Church would warn us is when we start talking as though democratic capitalism is the same thing as the Catholic faith. Yeah, or, <laughs> And or, it's not. Or supplant it. I mean, Mark, isn't that exactly the point 
of what Jesus was teaching in Mark 7. Yes, that's exactly what he's, what he's doing. Let me, read that, let me read that verse again that sure, you comment sure. on. Jesus says, In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold fast the tradition of men. Right, and that's, that's what the warning always is. It's not that human traditions are bad. So, you know, birthday candles, uh, turkey at, at Christmas or Thanksgiving, uh, democratic capitalism, um, you know, uh, surfing at Maui. Uh, or even you know, Plato's. Any number or of, of traditions that the human yeah. beings love to observe, they're great. And yeah. in fact, the, the church is the mother of a thousand yeah. little customs and traditions. She, she, she encourages these things. The only thing she warns about is don't elevate them to the status of sacred tradition. Yeah. As far as understanding what constitutes sacred tradition, this is where, this is where the teaching of the Church comes in, and particularly what we call the symbols of the faith. Uh, so, for example, the creed uh, or the dogmatic teachings of the Church. You know, when we start looking at, you know, when the Church says this is something that is absolutely essential to the faith, this is something that you must believe if you're going to call yourself a Catholic, so the real presence in the Eucharist, the just taking things at random, the Immaculate Conception of Mary, uh, um, you know, uh, Trinitarian doctrine, uh, these sorts of things are crucial to what it means to have a right understanding of the faith. Uh, and so, you know, when we speak of these things, we're talking about tradition with a capital T. Um, we can find, and, and this is one of the, yeah. one of the things that the the magisterium of the church is really essential for. We, we can find sometimes it's difficult to tell the difference. So you'll find people, for example, who uh, feel somehow as though the church did something crucially wrong in altering uh, our Friday fast disciplines. Well, that wasn't. That is a part of our tradition, but the, the the core part of the tradition is some act of self-denial on Fridays. Uh, what is not the core part of the tradition is how you observe that, uh, and so you can do it in different ways, according to the church, depending on different periods of time and and when and where you are and that I, sort of thing. I was going to say another historical issue that arose that was uh, when do we celebrate Easter? In the yeah. early days of the church, there was a, a, a long-term uh, discussion. You might even make it struggle between, you know, how do you calculate when Easter is decided? Uh, right. It isn't an issue of faith or morals, capital T. It was a, a liturgical tradition in the church that actually uh, different traditions to this day have different days for when they celebrate right. uh, Easter. Right. But the thing to take away from this as an evangelical is what you don't see in the early church anywhere is people approaching this on the, on the basis of the Bible alone. Right. Uh, because that's the big innovation, uh, which begins in, in, the, in the 16th century. Uh, and it really is it's just foreign to the way in which the early church approaches any of these sorts of matters. Uh, in fact, what you get is uh, a church that walks out of the apostolic period with a Bible in one hand, uh, but also with, you know, its other hand holding the hand of the bishop, if you will, and that bishop holding the hand of the pope. Uh, and so 
you you walk out of the apostolic period with a church that is looking at sacred tradition and reading its Bible through the lens of sacred tradition. Now, in this verse, Mark, um, so these are the traditions, and then I'd like you to talk about how they were delivered for a second, because he says, which were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by letter. I mean, this letter, 2 Thessalonians, majority of scholars have always recognized as one of the earliest. Right. Probably the second document in the New Testament. So think about that, audience. This is probably the second, which means that when this letter is being written by Paul... There is no New Testament. <laughs> there's, there's nothing else. Right. There's even... It's, it's a question that some of the Gospels have probably not even been put down on paper yet. Right. And so... Yeah, probably none of the Gospels uh, when Second Thessalonians is written. And... That's you know that really makes a difference because when the apostles when you read the New Testament and they speak of the Word of God, um, what they never mean is a written word because what what they're referring to, particularly in the Book of Acts, is they're talking about a preached word. Preaching. Um, that doesn't mean that they don't think that their written words are inspired. They they do. Uh, and in fact, Paul uh, makes this clear when he's writing to the Thessalonians, that they received the word that was preached to them, not as the word of man, but as the word of God. And so Paul understands uh, that what he's delivering is not mere human testimony, but, but something that comes from God himself. Uh, but when you read the book of Acts, the book of Acts, in speaking of the Word of God, is referring to the preaching of the apostles. Yep. Yep. Um, or First Corinthians and, and, fifteen and this is something that's just simply taken for granted. So the way in which the Word of God comes to us is both written and also spoken. I would also add, by the way, uh, that it comes to us in other ways. It comes to us uh, in the ways in which the apostles teach us to live as Christians. So, for example, the liturgical gestures. Oh, sure. Uh, a priest points out, pointed out to me one time that, you know, uh, Peter could walk into a modern church and he wouldn't recognize anything <laughs> as familiar to him, yeah. but he would recognize one thing. He would recognize the gesture of the elevation of the host because he'd seen that. Yeah. And he'd done it himself. He wouldn't know the language, you know, he wouldn't, he wouldn't recognize uh, the statues and all that stuff, but he would recognize that gesture. Uh, and so the gestures of the liturgy, the gestures of the sacraments as well, are ways in which tradition comes down to us. Let me give you another example, Mark, uh, to talk very long. Galatians 3.1. Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? That sounds like the use of icons, doesn't it? <laughs> what else could it be? <laughs> well, but see, that's the thing is, if you don't have any, fra this is a classic uh, example again of when you don't have any framework for for seeing Scripture, yeah. uh, in the way that the church understands it, you could read that verse a thousand times and never it just bounce off. Yeah, never see it. That's <laughs> just a figure of speech. He doesn't mean that it was really before their very eyes. Well, yeah, except unless he does, <laughs> in which case it means that they were using icons. 
Uh. Yeah, I mean, it, just, it doesn't make, I don't know what I did with that when I was an evangelical. Um, you know, the in the, this, what's interesting, in the First Timothy 3.15 passage, which is the, was the, the, the baseball bat that really got my attention to the authority of the church, what I find interesting, Mark, in this context of what you're saying, let me read that passage, uh, where he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these instructions to you so that if I am delayed, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and bulwark of truth. You, know, you always look at that, at least I do, and say, well, that points at the church as a pillar and foundation of truth. But another underlying issue there is that, is this not true, Mark? Paul's normal way of communicating the truth was not by writing, but was by being there. Right. And it was only when he couldn't be there that he had to <laughs> exactly. then decide to write Which is, a letter. by the way, exactly why he wrote the letters to the Thessalonians. He was in Thessalonica for like a few days, and then they beat him up and ran him out of town on a rail. <laughs> Yep. And you can read about this in the book of Acts. And so when you read the book of Acts, he shows up in Thessalonica, he preaches for a couple of days, and then this mob comes and beats him up and throws him out of town. And so, you know, he's real worried about the Thessalonians yeah. Yeah. Uh, because he hasn't been there very long. And, and you know, he's really worried that they're going to get, you know, some end times preacher is going to show up. That's why Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians is written. Because, you know, what if some end-time preacher shows up and is telling you that the end of the world is coming? Right? Don't listen to those guys, you know. <laughs> and here's how you need to conduct yourselves, and you're doing a good job. But that's why these letters are written, is exactly because he couldn't be there, and he really wanted to be there, because that was his ideal way yeah. of communicating. If he hadn't been put in jail and chained down, we wouldn't have a New Testament. Right. Yeah. And which, by the way, is also one of the things that you notice about Paul. One of the things that, that people will often complain about Paul is Paul never talks very much about the life of Jesus. He obviously didn't know anything about the life of Jesus. He was just making up stuff. Well, the reality, of course, is when you read the New Testament, what you're looking at is a correspondence between an apostle and various flocks uh, who is not, neither of them are ignorant of the details of the life of Jesus. Instead, they take for granted that yeah. that story has been delivered already. And so Paul's whole discussion is done in light of the fact that they've already received this tradition. They've already heard the sayings of Jesus. They've already heard the story of Jesus. And now let's talk about how to live our lives in light of that. And so when he does talk about the life of Jesus, what you discover is he uses language that's almost identical to what's in the Gospels. Yeah. For example, when he, he gives us the, uh, the uh, narrative of the Last Supper. Sounds just like the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Why? Well, because Paul is the inheritor of a liturgical tradition, just like the Gospel writers are, uh, and it's something that they hold in common. And so when he has to recite something about the life of Jesus, he does it in words that sound just like the Synoptic Gospels. In fact, let me read to the audience, 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul says, Now I would remind you, brethren, in what terms I preach to you the gospels which you received, in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold it fast, unless you believed. And then he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Right. In other words, he passed on a tradition. 
because Paul got his gospel from the Twelve, and he knows that gospel just as well as the Twelve do. Yeah. Yep. Um, and, and, and he gets it by tradition, uh, because, of course, the gospels haven't been written yet. Uh, but he's, he's got something better than the Gospels. He has the 12 apostles, and he sat down in a room and sat there and talked to Peter, James, and John face to face. The Gospels is, even put, is putting down on paper, or on papyrus, uh, what had been passed on trust, because they believe that the Holy Spirit, as Jesus promised, was guiding them into truth, helping them remember what he had taught. So that's why they believed that passing it on was trustworthy. Mark, we're going to take a break. When I come back, I'd like you to talk about, okay, what does Paul mean by standing firm and holding to these traditions? Okay. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. I'm joined today by Mark Shea, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. The Coming Home Network International is a non-profit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are on the journey and interested in learning more about the Coming Home Network International or know someone who's thinking of becoming Catholic, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or contact us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, joined today by Mark Shea. Mark, I just read a moment ago, 1 Corinthians 15. Let me read that again. Now I would remind you, brethren, in what terms I preach to you the gospel which you received, in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold it fast. And that's parallel to what Paul was teaching in the passage you said today, that you chose today. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions. What does he mean by standing firm and holding? Uh... I think that what he's talking about is is twofold. Um, first of all, there's some, there's the intellectual need to hold to the whole tradition, not just grab at the parts that you happen to like and then use them as weapons to attack the rest of the tradition that you don't happen to like as much. Uh, that's what heresy is. Uh, heresy means it comes from the Greek word, which means to draw out a thread. So, for example, you know, you pull out a thread on your sleeve, and your sleeve falls off, <laughs> and that's what heresy does. Heresy says, "Well, I like this part of the Catholic tradition, but not that part of the yeah. Catholic tradition. In fact, I don't like that part of the Catholic tradition so much. I'm going to say that it's not really part of what God wanted to say at all." Uh, and when you do that, uh, all you're doing is you're just grabbing some part of the tradition so that you can use it as a weapon against the rest of it. So part of holding fast to the tradition is being willing to live uh, with the tensions that the Catholic tradition always imposes on us. Um, the Catholic tradition proposes to us certain things that don't seem to go together. God is one, yet three. Uh, God is sovereign, yet we have freedom. Uh, we are to, you know, uh, love God and also love our neighbor. In fact, we're to love God and love our enemies. Uh, 
yeah. uh, including the enemies of God. Um, and, and so these kinds of things, that's hard to do. Uh, and so we have to hold fast to the fullness of, the, of what the gospel reveals to us. Chesterton says that um, the gospel uh, blesses us not because it's right where we're right, but because it's right where we're wrong. Uh, and none of us likes that, of course. Uh, <laughs> it's as hard for me as it is for anybody. But that is a huge part of it. And the other part, of course, is that we can't just hold it as an intellectual theory. We have to live this. Yeah. Uh, so we have to take positive actions of some sort to obey the gospel, especially when the gospel calls us to believe and do things that we really dislike. So, just, you know, Jesus uses examples uh, that were shocking to his contemporaries. They're not shocking to us. We're able to look at, you know, at the Pharisees and say, ha ha, they didn't get the point of the parable of the Good Samaritan because they were narrow and uh, they were foolish and spiritually blind, unlike me. But, so, um, you know, today, if Jesus were telling the telling the parable of the Good Samaritan, he would, he would tell the parable of the Good Taliban member. Not oh, so easy now, right? <laughs> <laughs> but you know, this, this, this neat relationship between stand firm and hold to traditions is like the, the virtues, right? Uh, prudence, uh, fortitude, justice, and temperance are, are the way we express the standing and holding firm. But, right. but, but the only way we can be sure that we're being prudent, just, fortitudinous, or and temperate is we've got to <laughs> know what's true, what's good. Right. And that's right. the tradition. And the way you do that is by uh, glomming on to the teaching of the church and not letting go. Yeah. Uh, and the teaching of the church in its fullness. So that means, of course, uh, uh, it means uh, the normal aspects of the Christian life. So get to Mass, uh, yep. you know, frequent the sacraments, especially confession. Uh, live a life of charity, especially charity toward your enemies and charity toward the poor. Uh, and with those things, we are told to expect uh, that God will guide us, that God will give us the grace of the Holy Spirit. Uh, however the Holy Spirit chooses to speak to us, it will usually be by human means because that's God, how God reveals himself. And actually they answer the very questions you wanted to experience way back when. How do I know Jesus and how do I follow him? Yeah. That's how you know. You stand firm and hold to the traditions that right. Jesus gave to his apostles, to his church, and to us. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, a pleasure. And for all that you're doing, I want to remind the audience of your books on Mary. Go to the internet, look up Mark Shea, all the good things, and then also look for the movie he's in this spring. Mark, we'll have you back on soon. All right, thanks so much. All right, God bless. And all of you watching, hey, tune in next week when Dion is my guest. God bless you. See you then.